Well, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, open them up to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be uh, reading from verse 27. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. It says the following. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe me? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we just want to thank you again for your word. Lord, so often we are faithless, and yet you are faithful. So often we struggle, we stumble. And fall in it, you stand firm. And your word never perishes. It always comes to pass. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. It's your words to us, Lord. And I just pray this morning as we examine this passage, Lord, would you give us a fresh picture of you, who you are. Lord, open our hearts that we could tenderly receive your word to us this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you uh, this morning that know me well, uh, you'll probably know several things about me. Uh, You know that I can be a pretty focused person. Uh, You know that I can be at times task-orientated kind of person, a hard-working person, uh, some might say a stubborn person. Um... When I was a younger man, um, one of the things that I was applying um, myself to in a similar vein was pursuing medicine. And uh, I was really giving it my all. I was waking up at the early hours of the morning uh, to study. I would, uh, at lunchtime, go to the library at school and study. Uh, I was studying around the clock. No one was going to distract me from my goal and my purpose, which was to get into medicine to become a doctor. I wasn't asking anyone for input 
or advice. No, I was going for it. Uh, How did God feel about my choice of career? Well, for me, it wasn't even a question. This is what I wanted. You know, people had raised uh, with me that they thought I should consider pastoral ministry, and my attitude was a little bit, oh yeah, I'll pray about it, you know, thanks but no thanks. Um, For me, you see, much of my early adult life, I lived with this great disconnect between my faith and my life. On one hand, my faith, you know, I believed in Jesus, I believed he died for my sins, I believed all that stuff, but my life, well, I call the shots. I'm doing what I want to do. You know, friends, I want to hear this morning if I'm not alone in that kind of wrestle, that kind of struggle, that disconnect that we can sometimes have as Christians between our faith, trusting in Jesus, and our life. Who makes the decisions about how we're going to live? Uh, I trust in Jesus to forgive my sins, but the rest of my life I call the shots. Um, You know, that kind of thinking, I think, it actually kind of really reflects our Aussie culture. You know, we live in this nation that loves the underdog, loves the battler, you know, the self-made man. We love to be independent. We love to make our own way. Um, But we also kind of hate the tall poppy. And we also kind of find authority difficult. I mean, kind of, we just kind of hate being told what to do. And as a result, similarly, we can so easily, I think, assume that the great Australian dream should be for me as well. The great Australian dream, well, of course, that's what God wants for me because that's what would make me happy. By the great Australian dream, I mean the great Australian dream to have a job I love, you know, a, a job that's stimulating, a job that's prestigious, a job that's flexible, a job that has good pay. The great Australian dream to own a home, but not, not just any own home, to own a nice home in my favorite suburb, close to, close to the shops, to have a bit of a backyard. The great Australian dream to travel widely and frequently. The great Australian dream to have a nice family with successful children. The great Australian dream to retire with a relaxed lifestyle. You know, probably on the beach or on a massive block of land or to live in the inner city in a nice townhouse. The great Australian dream. And, and we can kind of assume that the great Australian dream should be ours as well. I mean, why not? Don't hear me wrong this morning, our church. Like, none of these things are wrong at all, necessarily. But the truth is that if, if you're a Christian, you can't assume that what you want is what God wants for you. Why? Because we don't have authority over our own lives. We don't have final authority over our own lives. You know, this morning, uh, however, we're going to be looking at one who does have all authority in heaven and on earth. And here's the focus of our passage this morning. In fact, this morning our passage that we're going to be looking at, we're going to see a massive clash of authorities. It's a showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And we're going to be going ringside right into the middle of this battle. Um, This morning, I've entitled the message, All Authority in Heaven and on Earth. And uh, really just two simple points straight from the text. Firstly, authority encountered Um, We're going to be spending most of our time here just digging deep into the passage and then authority applied. 
Uh, two simple points, but really one take home that I'm hoping to really help us see this morning. I believe it's what God would have us see this morning. And that is that as we see kind of the supreme authority of Jesus Christ, we'd find conviction and comfort. That as we see the supreme authority of Jesus Christ, we'd find two things, and that is conviction on the one hand, but comfort on the other. So why don't we jump on in and uh, have a look at our text as we see uh, point one, authority encountered. Um, Just by way of context, um, two weeks ago we were looking at Palm Sunday and um, the scene where we see Jesus finally arrive in Jerusalem on the Sunday of Passion Week, where the Sunday leading up to obviously Good Friday where he's going to be going to the cross. And Mark chapter 1, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, is really this huge kind of like anticlimax um, because the King of glory has finally come. The God-man, the divine Son, has finally come into Jerusalem. And yet, as we saw just two weeks ago, he's welcomed as just another pilgrim. No one seems to know that he's arrived. And so he makes just this kind of average for a pilgrim entrance into Jerusalem, goes to the temple, kind of just looks around, and then goes straight back to Bethany, just outside the city. It's this real anticlimax. I mean, because if you read in the Old Testament, um, the temple and who Jesus is as the God-man's son himself, you know, we read in First Kings chapter 8, about Solomon finishing the temple. And there's this huge scene where he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to rest finally uh, in the temple. And we read the following. It says, And when the priests came out of the holy place, having brought the Ark of the Covenant in, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. It's this beautiful vision of splendor and awe and majesty as the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And just two weeks ago, we saw God the Son himself enter into the temple. The glory of the Lord now physically present inside the temple and yet noticed by no one. Truly Greatness veiled in weakness. Moving on, last week uh, with Patrick, uh, he preached a great message as we saw the divine Messiah on the Monday of Passion Week returning again to the temple. And we saw that Jesus, having surveyed uh, the temple on Sunday, returns again um, to the courts and we see this amazing scene. Read with me uh, just earlier in our passage, verse 15. It says the following that we read last week. It says, And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. 
I mean, it's this amazing scene. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, have you ever seen someone like at a church markets just like walk up to a table and just like overthrow it? I mean, it, people would be going like, who is this? Like, what are you doing? And Jesus here is turning over tables and he's driving people out and people are trying to carry things and he's forbidding them to come in. It would have been this chaotic, uh, amazing scene. And all the while, the religious establishment is quietly looking on. And they are furious. The stage is set for a remarkable showdown. Well, we come to our passage. We're now up to the Tuesday of Passion Week. The Friday, Good Friday, is getting closer and closer. And what will follow on from our passage is, in fact, a series of showdowns as different groups from the religious establishment all seek to try and challenge Jesus' authority. Well, let's pick up our passage this morning, verse 27. Um, Why don't you read with me? It says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes And the elders came to him. Jesus, as a rabbi, would have most naturally spent his time with his followers at the temple teaching. I mean, this is what rabbis would do in Jerusalem. But Jesus, as he returns to the temple, he's quickly noticed. And a group immediately comes to approach him. Um, Notice the significance of who is in the group. We have three different types of people in the group. Chief priests scribes, and the elders. Now, this is significant because these groups actually represent the three different groups of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 71 members that kind of mediated between Rome and the Jewish nation. They were the governing body in Jerusalem for religious matters. And they even had some input into the political matters as well. Chief priests, these are senior religious clerics. Scribes, these are religious legal experts. Elders, these are influential members of Jewish society. Well, why are representatives from each group present here? Well, what we can assume is that the events of the previous day had caused a crisis. And they had assembled in response to determine a response. How would they deal with this rogue rabbi? Read with me again from last week, verse 18. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus was condemning the system of trade they promoted. This was an attack on them. And people, even worse, are listening. And for the Sanhedrin, this is danger. So we can assume that they met late on the Monday, to consider the question, how will we respond? And they formed 
a delegation of representatives. And this delegation now confronts him. To an onlooker, this would have been like David and Goliath. This is like Rhodes scholars versus an uneducated tradie, now rabbi from a rural backwater some way out west. Let's read again, verse 27. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Notice what they say. By what authority are you doing these things? And they clarify specifically what they mean with the second question. Who gave you this authority to do them? These things. Most likely they're talking about what Jesus had done previously in the temple. But notice they're not offended that he cleansed the temple. That's not what their offense is at all. Their question is, what gives you the right? Who gives you the right to do it? It's his authority they're questioning. You see, the three groups that had presented themselves to Jesus, they'd all earned their authority. The high priests, they'd earned their authority. They'd earned their authority by birthright. They were born into the line of Aaron. More than that, by years and years of training. The scribes, decades of technical study and devotion to the famous teachers of the past. The elders, they'd risen in prominence in society. They'd been shown to be faithful and through proven devotion and service in the temple, they'd earned their authority. And Jesus was a nobody. Hear what James Edwards, the uh, acclaimed Bible scholar, writes about this. He says the following, He says the temple in Jerusalem, with all its Herodian immensity and grandeur and its commanding view of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives and its unrivaled historical and theological significance becomes the inevitable stage for the challenge to Jesus' authority. The characteristic of Jesus that left the most lasting impression on his followers and caused the most offence to his opponents was his exousia, his sovereign freedom and magisterial authority. I don't want you to miss that last sentence. Let me read it to you again. The characteristic of Jesus that left the most lasting impression on his followers and caused the most offence to his opponents was his exousia, his sovereign freedom and magisterial authority. Let me ask you a question. What characteristic of Jesus would you have expected to leave the most lasting impression on his followers? Maybe his humility. Maybe his wisdom. Maybe his kindness. Maybe his patience. To those that knew Jesus, it was his authority. It was his sovereign freedom and his magisterial authority. And in Mark, we've seen his authority displayed like none before him. 
we've seen his authority to, to, to teach. In Mark 1.27, it says, And they were amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. We've seen his authority to bind the strong man, Satan, in chapter 3. We've seen his authority to forgive sins. He says in Mark chapter 2.10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. We've seen his authority over the Sabbath. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. We've seen his authority over nature. In chapter 4, it says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. We've seen his authority over sickness. In chapter 3, it says, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. In chapter 7, we've seen his authority over death itself. It says, Taking her... By the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking, because she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now we've seen his authority displayed again, as twice he commands the Sanhedrin, verses 29 and 30. He says twice, answer me. Friends, if you had followed Jesus, your most lasting impression and possibly the greatest source of offense to you would have been his authority. Yet, Jesus had not yet publicly taught about the source of his authority. James Edwards writes the following. He says, now for the first time in the temple and before the Sanhedrin, that is the most authoritative place and before the most authoritative body in Israel, Jesus opens up a window of understanding into his own authority. That's what Jesus wants us to see this morning. He wants us to see the source of his authority. Why don't you read with me verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. On initial reading, uh, as you read this passage, it can kind of seem like Jesus has been a little bit tricky here. He's being a little bit evasive here. He's trying to stump them a little bit. But actually, as you read deeper, it's far from it. This is, in fact, a loving and gracious answer from the King of Glory. Firstly, at the time, it was rabbinic practice to commonly to answer a question with a question. But secondly, the answer to their question is found in his question. You see, the baptism of John, when he says the baptism of John, he's actually referring to the entire ministry of John the Baptist. And Jesus is saying, in effect, do you want to know whose authority I'm doing my ministry in? Look no further than the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus is saying, how you understand the ministry of John the Baptist will define how you understand me. 
And in order to understand what that means, we actually need to go back and look at the ministry of John the Baptist to see what it was all about. If you flick back in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 1, I just want to read you some of the opening verses of Mark's gospel. Uh, I want to read you uh, Mark chapter 1 from verse 2. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, John had a ministry calling people to repentance. Why? To prepare the way of the Lord. His ministry was preparing the path for the coming Messiah. More John looks at Jesus and says, this is the one. This is the one. This is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah. So Jesus then asks them a question in verse 30. He says in our passage in verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man. Notice how he only gives them two options. Was it from heaven? Was it from God? Or was it from man? Was it merely human? It's one way or the other. There's no room to move. Was John's ministry merely human? Was he a false prophet? In which case he was wrong about me. Or was he a prophet from God? Was his authority from God? Because if it was from God... Jesus is also the promised coming Lord of Isaiah 42. He's the Messiah come to save God's people. He is the one sent and set apart from God. And therefore, his authority trumps all human authority and therefore trumps the authority of the Sanhedrin. Now read with me verse 31 to 33 as we consider their response. And it says, And they discussed it with one another, saying... If we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe in him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. You know, church, their response is one of the most appalling responses in all of Scripture. Notice that there's no desire for truth whatsoever. Notice that the interest is solely in self-preservation. If we say from God, he will respond, why didn't you believe his message? If we say from man, while the crowds revere John as a prophet from God, and they might turn against us, Matthew and Luke say they might stone us to death in response. 
Notice they don't ask, did God really send John the Baptist? Do we believe it was true or false? They're not interested in that. Their interest is only in self-preservation. And the most expedient answer is to pretend to be ignorant. We don't know. You see, the Pharisees had actually already made up their mind about both Jesus and John. In John's Gospel, uh, they sent people to question John the Baptist. And in Matthew chapter 3, John is ruthless with them. He calls them a brood of vipers that need to repent. You know, Jesus had, in addition, uh, repeatedly uh, caused them, that is the Sanhedrin, great offense. This isn't the first time. This is the culmination of a ministry of offense. He had offended them by healing on the Sabbath. He had offended them by accepting sinners. He had offended them by calling tax collectors into fellowship with himself. He had offended them by undermining their oral tradition of hand washing. He had offended them by presuming to forgive sins. And they'd been plotting his demise since chapter 3, verse 6. More, their answer reveals their hypocrisy. You know, these guys were meant to be the spiritual guides of Israel. And in this moment, they shamely confess their ignorance. They don't even know if John is from God. They only care about preserving their lot and they disqualify themselves from ministry. They are incompetent. They are the fig tree with fruit that has rotted. The temple is utterly defiled. The point is, the Son of God, the divine Son, who had repeatedly displayed his authority for all to see, stands before them, and they're completely blind. Well, that's point one. Authority encountered. Well, point two, not just authority encountered, but authority applied. I guess the question I want to think about this morning is, how does this uh, passage apply to our lives? Having seen the Sanhedrin reject the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, how should we respond to that? Well, first, firstly, and I've got three points of application this morning. I think the first one is that it should come as a warning to those of us who are yet to accept his authority. I think it should really come as a warning to us who are yet to really accept his authority. I imagine that in a room this size, there's people here this morning who are not trusting in Jesus yet. You haven't come to that place. Maybe you're interested in finding out more about Jesus. Maybe you're not interested. Now, one thing's for sure, I've got a lot of respect if that's you for coming along. I mean, that takes a lot of guts to do something like this, to come along to a church. Um, but the point is that more people I talk to Uh, about Jesus, the more I realize that people are often confused about what it means to be a Christian and what it means to really follow Jesus. You know, for me personally, as I shared before, I I used to think that being a Christian was about believing a bunch of stuff Jesus did. You know, you believe he died on the cross, you know, you believe he was God, so on and so forth. Um, Other people I I hear um, think being a Christian is something different. Uh, My sister-in-law, um, Cherie, um, was talking to a friend of hers the other day who told her that she's actually a half-Christian. And I was like, puzzle, what does that mean? And apparently, uh, I think it's like 
mom's Christian, but dad's a Buddhist, so that makes me a half Christian. Um, and the idea is like Christian is something you're born, right? You, you're born as a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. I think there's a lot of confusion around about it. But actually, being a Christian is actually all about authority. It's entirely about authority. The question is, do you believe his authority is merely human? It's just the authority of a, t- a famous teacher or something like that? Or is it from God? And if it is from God, will you give him the authority to call the shots over your life right now? Will you trust him? You know, we may intellectually kind of assent to Jesus as king um, and his death and resurrection say, oh yeah, I believe in that, but will we submit to his authority now? Will we allow our lives to be governed by his word? You know, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to put your trust in Jesus, to submit yourself to his authority. And if that's you this morning, this passage should come as a warning to you. It's a warning because what we see is that if you're unwilling to humble yourself and examine his claims, he may refuse to reveal himself to you. The Sanhedrin came and their minds were already made up. And Jesus refused to reveal his source of authority to them. You know, the result of him refusing is really a tragedy because if they'd only had faith as small as a mustard seed, they would have received what they were looking for. If they'd only come with a genuine request, you know, if you read Mark's gospel, not once does he refuse or turn away a genuine seeker. Tragically, because of their hard hearts, he refuses to reveal the source of his authority to them. And my real appeal for you this morning, if that's you, is don't reject his free offer of forgiveness to you. Don't walk away here without accepting his free offer of forgiveness to you. Come and talk to someone about it. Don't take your sins with you to the grave. That's the first point, a warning to those who are yet to accept his authority. But secondly, I think it should convict us as Christians as we read his word. I think it should bring great conviction to us. The truth is that even for those who have given their lives to following Jesus, there's this real ongoing struggle that we all have to fully submit ourselves under his authority. You know, what we believe as a church, you know, we believe that the Bible is God's very own word. It's his authority, authoritative word. We believe Jesus is the word become flesh for us. We believe that every word in this Bible is breathed out by God such that to disbelieve or disobey a single word is to disbelieve and disobey God himself. That's what we believe. And I doubt that there's too many people who sitting in this room would disagree with me at that point. But I think if we peel beneath the surface, we all have real wrestles with this. Um, And I think we face two temptations. First of all, we're tempted just to intellectualize the word. Um, 
A lot of people here are parents, and um, if you're not a parent, you've been a kid at some point, so I'm sure you can relate to the illustration. But just imagine, as a parent, you're speaking to your child, addressing your child, and you say to your child, go and tidy your room. And 30 minutes later, you come back and you ask your child the question, have you tidied your room? And your child comes back to you and says, no, I haven't, but, but I just so appreciated the, the, the nuance there in what you said, how you used the word tidy and you didn't use the word clean. I, just, I, I, I haven't done it, but I just really appreciate the little nuance there in the wording there. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, how would you respond to that? Or imagine if, if, if your child comes back to you and says, you know what, no, 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 I haven't done it, but, but you know what, I'll put it to memory. I remember exactly what you said. You know, you said, uh, Brendan, can you go and tidy, tidy your room? And isn't that great? Aren't you proud of me? You know, how would you as a parent respond to that? Like, the answer's obvious. No, I want you to actually go and do it. And yet, I think it's so easy as Christians to, to intellectualize God's Word to us. The real question is not, do I know it? The real question is, have I been faithful? Have I done it? And so, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, the question is, am I making disciples? When he says, store up riches in heaven. The question is, am I being generous? When he says, do not stop meeting together. The question is, do I take that seriously? We're we're tempted to intellectualize. But secondly, I think we're also tempted to elevate our sense of what is right over what God's word says. I think we all do it in different ways, elevating our sense of what's right over what God's Word says. You know, when we read a part of God's Word that disagrees with our sense of what is right, what do we do in response? You know those difficult passages? Things like, take up your cross and follow me, or the doctrine of election, or the doctrine of hell and judgment, or what the Bible teaches about sexuality, or manhood and womanhood, or even relationships with unbelievers. When we read these passages, do we press in to carefully try and hear what Jesus is saying to us in his word? Do we submit ourselves to listen, to hear it and receive it, even when it conflicts with my natural sense of what is right and wrong? Or do we elevate what we feel is right, what our experience says, what works? Do we simply dismiss and ignore what the Word is saying? You know, I think all of us face a real wrestle in in this area. And so the question I want you to consider this week is, is this, are there areas of my life that I'm currently not surrendering to the authority of Christ? Are there any areas, Lord, of my life that I'm not currently surrendering to the authority of Christ? Lord, would you make that clear to me? Well, not only uh, point two, it should convict us as we read his word, but point three, I think, and finally, it it should bring comfort to us as we trust in his promises. You see, the authority of Jesus isn't all about conviction, but I believe there's a deep comfort as we understand it as well. 
Why? Well, the answer is because he alone has the power to keep his promises. You know, if you're someone here today who's gone through great difficulty, you know, maybe it's the loss of a loved one or maybe it's a shameful sin, maybe it's a repeated failure, maybe it's frustrations at work, maybe it's broken relationship, maybe it's a difficult marriage. The temptation is to trust in your circumstances and emotions, what they are telling you that is true rather than the promises of Christ. You know, telling you things like, there's no hope. You're damaged goods. You won't make it through this. The future's bleak. What great comfort then to know that he has authority to keep his promises. He has the power to keep his promises and look what he promises us. Read with me, John six thirty seven says this, listen to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out, says Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Matthew twenty eight twenty. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that you, in me, you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, these are powerful promises. And Jesus has all authority to make them. And I believe there's great comfort to be found in them. And so the second question I want you to consider this week is is this. Are there any areas in which I am proudly trusting in my circumstances and not in the promises of Christ? Are there any areas, Lord, in which I'm proudly trusting in my circumstances and not in your promises? Lord, help me trust and your promises. But church, I believe this is only the beginning of the comfort to be found in the authority of Christ. The greatest comfort is not simply that he has all authority. The greatest comfort, church, is what he is like. And he is good. You know, Jesus Christ doesn't simply carry all authority in heaven and on earth. But he uses his authority to lay his life down. To lay his life down for you. Isn't that beautiful? You know, this passage we've seen this morning, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders have come to him, and we can't help but read it and remember chapter 8, where we see that his mission was to give his life. It says in Mark eight thirty one, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You know, church, we rebelled against him. We turned our backs on him. We thought we didn't need him. 
we went our own way and we're worthy of his just retribution. We're worthy of eternal conscious torment. We're worthy of the full wrath of God. And yet he came. He came for us, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Church, he hung on that cross, bearing the full wrath of God, using his authority in full, not to preserve his life, but to lay it down for us. He died, he rose, having paid the price in full, and now he stands victorious in heaven, and we await his return. Church, isn't he worthy of authority over us? If ever there was one worthy of authority, isn't it our Lord Jesus Christ? Let's come to him and trust him, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. One I pray for us as we close. Well, this morning, we just want to come to you with hearts filled with thanks. Lord, you are supreme in authority. You are supreme in power and might. There is no limit to your sovereign power. And yet you laid it all down for us. Lord, I pray for any of us here this morning who are wrestling with you. Wrestling with bits of your word that are uncomfortable. Wrestling with having you as our supreme authority. Lord, I pray for anyone in that place. Lord, would you help them to see that you're good? Would you help them to see that you're worthy of trust? Lord, I also pray for anyone going through this morning the fiery trial, difficult circumstance, tempted to despair, tempted to feel alone. Lord, would you help them to see your authority, that you're present, that you keep every one of your promises, that you'll carry us to the end and that you're coming back soon. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, and we pray all this in his precious name. Amen.